Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working for a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with the Security Architecture Podcast. We have Dean here today from Axonia to share his story and his motivation. Dean, can you please tell us about yourself and your company? Sure. Thank you for having me, Vienna. It's a great pleasure. So Exonius is the leader and the creator, if you'll get to that point of the story, of what we call the cybersecurity asset management um, problem space. What we do is help organizations understand everything in their infrastructure and then help obviously make it secure and operationalize everything around that. We've started the company about five and a half years ago. And since then, been one of the fastest growing cybersecurity companies in history, even by revenue. We're about 650 employees, about 400 customers. We sell to every kind of organization you can imagine, from the largest federal agencies to Fortune 500s to, you know, even 100 employee startups. And really, I think what we've focused on in, in a very big way is being very customer obsessed and thinking of ourselves as an organization whose only right to exist is dependent on how much our customers say they've derived value from our solution. So I hope that's a good intro. Um, it is me, a very good intro. Yeah. yeah, and me personally, just to talk about me, I'm a New Yorker today, but originally from Israel. You know, loved computers from a very young age, learned how to program when I was 12. Got my bachelor's degree when I was 19, won the International Robotic Olympics when I was 15, was in Israeli intelligence for five years, finished as a captain. There I met my two co-founders in Exonia, Sofia Navador, and that's who I am. Great, great. Thank you. I always tell people that, and not, not, not just me, if you don't know what we have, there's no way we can protect it. And I like to kind of do examples of real life. If I need to make sure I need to winterize my house, I need to know how many windows I have on my house. If I don't know, there's no way I'm able to do a good, good job there. Of course. In 2019, we won the RSA award for most best cyber startup of the year. It's called the RSA Innovation Sandbox. And our pitch there was uh, the Toyota Camry of cybersecurity. Was that I think this is the only reason you guys won because of the Toyota. You know, Nate, our head of marketing, our chief marketing officer, he went on stage and he asked how many people here had a poster of a car in their bedroom when they were a kid or teenager or whatever. And a bunch of people raised their hand. Um, and then he asked, okay, how many of you was that car a Toyota? And obviously everybody lowered their hand and everybody started laughing. And we explained that us as humans, especially those who love technology, we're always focused about the most cutting edge, right? Where we love the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, the rocket ships. We love the cutting edge of technology. But actually, the car that sells the most and you know creates the most value in transportation is the Toyota Camry because it's the fundamental way to solve the problem. And that's sort of the story of Exonius in itself is that there's this huge fundamental problem that if you go to any compliance framework, any security framework, from the CIS to NIST to, you know, SOC 2 to whatever, the first thing you have to understand is what are your assets, right? What are your hardware assets? What are your software assets? Everything else needs to be built 
on top of that. And when we were in the market, we realized that was not a solved problem. And it's not an easy solved problem as well, because 10 years ago, we may say, I have serverless applications, so maybe computers, maybe network devices. Right now, there are so many different acronyms we have in the cloud that we don't even know what they mean, right. not just how even to standardize them and serialize them. So it is a very big problem. And I'm wondering, five years ago, what happened in your life? You woke up, had a beer, had a nice walk on a, on a beach, and you decided, okay, I want to solve this problem with these people. Yeah. So the story starts, I can't say the name, and I've told the story a few times, that I was part of working with a very large company in North America, about as large as you can imagine. And we're in their headquarters in the Midwest. Um, and after working with them for a few days, we discover a threat inside their network. We discover that threat operating, installing code on a machine that was monitored. And we look at the code and it's very clearly IOCs of a threat group that other companies have researched very deeply associated with the Chinese government, right? Now, this is either somebody who took the entire tool set of that threat actor and used it, or it's that threat actor. Irregardless, it's 100%, you know, that tool set of that Chinese APT. And that threat was originating from a certain IP address in the organization, right? And you look at that IP address, it's a workstation, right? It looks like, uh, you know, it has a host name, it's in a dynamic IP range, but essentially it's somebody's machine. And we went to the team we were working with and we showed them, hey, look at this threat that's inside your network. And they said, okay, great that you found out about it, but uh, what are we supposed to do about it now? And I said, here's the IP address of where, this is like answer response 101, right? Like, okay, we discovered the threat, fantastic. Now let's go research this machine to understand everything about this threat, right? Like why, what is it doing there? How's it, you know, what is its persistence? Like where else is it infected in the network? Um, and I said, we need to go and have some research, you know, some access to this machine. And they said, yeah, we're not going to be able to do that. And I asked them, no, this is not like a internet. Like this is not a public internet IP. This is your network. And they said, yeah, we get that. We're not going to be able to figure out what, how to get to this machine. And I was a little confused because, you know, I had the assumption this is one of the best funded security teams on the, in the world, right? I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they said, look, this is a part of the network where we don't really know what's going on. And I'm Not like, the dark web, I hope. It's like dark internal web, right? Like, and ask them, but let's assume there's somebody sitting behind the keyboard, this computer. And let's say they want to install Office. Okay, Microsoft Office. What happens? How, how does that happen? And they said, yeah, they'll open a ticket. And based on the ticket, you know, whatever tool we have on that machine, we'll use that to deploy that software. And I said, fantastic. So let's, so how many of these tools can there be? Like, let's go through all of them. Like, oh, wow. Okay. Let's get back to you. And they spent a couple hours and they got back to me this list of, you know, this two digit number of tools. Every kind wow. of agent, both IT and security you can imagine. I'm like, wow, okay, but let's go through each one of those and look up the IP address or the host name of this machine. And we don't have access to all of them. And I'm like, aren't you the global security team? They're like, yeah, but you know, some teams don't give us access to their tools. I'm like, okay. So we went through the ones we did have access to and we couldn't find this machine. Um, and then I told them, okay, it has to be like, you know, the SOC, the SIM system. Like you have access to that, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, then let's look up this IP address and this host name. 
in the sim and uh, we get like 15,000 results. I'm like, okay, that's not going to help us. So we went to the network operations team and they couldn't figure out what this thing is. And then we finished that day by them emailing people, hey, do you know what this machine is? Like wow. they just started asking people, do you know what this machine is? And I went to bed that night and I couldn't really sleep because my brain couldn't figure it out. Like, you know, something didn't make sense to me. So I go back the next day and ask them, guys, do you even like know how many? Like, let's say just devices. Like, do you know how many do you have? And they said, yeah, you know, we had a whole project about this like last year to figure out the number. And we got to, you know, to the range of we have between one and a half to three million. And I said, wow, whoa. I'm like, whoa, look, you know, I get that it's dynamic, right? But that's too wide of a range to mean anything. And they started explaining to me how the network, you know, there's stuff coming in and out and being spun up. Uh, and, that. and I told them, but look, you know, if you go to your CFO, your head of finance, and you ask them, how much money do we have on the balance sheet? And finance, you know, money comes in and out just as fast, maybe not as fast, but like just as frequent or as dynamic. If that CFO would have said, oh yeah, we have between one and a half to $3 billion on the balance sheet, your hair would catch on fire. So why do you feel like, why is that a good enough answer for the number of devices? And they basically explained to me, like, that's as good as we can get to. And I started asking people everywhere, like, you know, I started asking that question of every CISO, every CIO, every CTO I would meet. Do you know how many devices do you have? And I would always get that answer. Either they would say, honestly, like, I don't know, we, we don't have a good number. Or they would say, you know, a range that has 100% variance, which means the same thing. Interesting. I have actually a very similar interesting story. I was doing a consulting gig for a very big company as well. And we were going over their security controls and what they do. And they ask, oh, we have this amazing EDR tool. I'm like, okay, great. How many holes do you think you have? He's like, we think we have this. How many you know, agents you have? Oh, like we think this. He's like, how do you actually know that every device on your network has the EDR installed? Like, how? He's like, oh, because we can go to the EDR. I'm like, yes, but the EDR only showed the installed one. Exactly. You need to have some kind of correlation between DHCP, DNS, exactly. other tools. And they're like, we don't know. And the interesting part, they came back four months after that they found a very big gap of tools that didn't have the agent installed and actually had some issues with this service as well. So it's close to my heart, the story you're telling, because it's very important yeah. for people to understand the correlation between how many people we have, how many employees we have, and how many devices we have, and what's installed these devices. So you kind of went and already started researching the problem. So you went to CSS and asked the question, did you also ask them if I create such tool, would you buy it? Or it came later? So I even, I didn't even know if we would be the team or the company that is able to capture this problem space, but because it was so fundamental and nobody solved it, I had never seen an organization that was able to solve it. I realized that there will be like just my, you know, vision, my understanding of how the market dynamics are. I knew that there, within the next five, 10 years, there will be a company who will be a huge successful company that does this. I was sure of it hundred percent. It's very hard for me even to explain, but it was as clear to me as that the sun would come up the next morning. And then when I start to ask people like, you know, um, about the proposed solution, they told me, no, we think that's impossible. And once. I heard that, 
I knew that we would be the team that solves it because I realized why nobody did it because they didn't realize the technical challenge required. And I knew that we as a team knew how to solve it. Great. So what was your next steps? Did you want to raise money? Did you want to build a kind of a better alpha version of the tool? Yeah, it's a funny story. So if you think about the problem, if you go far enough into the past, it didn't exist, right? When computing environments used to be very homogenous, right? Like it was one type of device. It was one operating system. It was one network. It was one agent. It didn't, the problem didn't exist. It was really easy to understand what you had. But once you have fragmentation of controls, right? Once you have multiple agents, multiple operating systems, multiple networks, multiple teams, multiple environments, right? Virtual and virtualization environments, local and public. So basically you're saying um, to me, you hate Excel documents, correct? I, I don't hate Excel, <laughs> I, but it's funny. When people ask me what's our number one biggest competitor, I say a spreadsheet. That's the number one, because that's what people would do, right? They would do exactly the process that you said, which is the data is fragmented into many different sources, many different silos, and they needed to correlate it together. And we as humans, how do we correlate multiple data sources in the simplest way? It's a spreadsheet, right? And like that agent example, and we see that in every single organization, including Sonius ourselves, we start running our own tool on ourselves. Um, you, the agent only knows what it knows. And there's another baseline silo or maybe multiple ones you need to compare it to. So you need to correlate that data, right? So to me, the solution played out in two different dimensions. The first is you have to pull the data together very effectively from all the different existing silos. And that's not agent-based, that's not network-based, which was how people tried to solve it before. It was all about connecting to those sources, right? Through APIs, some of them don't have APIs. And that means you need to build a lot of what we call adapters, right? Integrations. Today, we have over 500 of them. So you cover all the existing controls and the data silos the organization has. But then the really hard part is how you correlate the data together to give one singular unified answer about each asset. And today, by the way, we think of assets beyond devices. It's also identities and applications and vulnerabilities and a bunch of other things. But so once we realized that, I was like, oh, you know, this was my second startup. I had done another startup in cybersecurity before that got acquired, not a great outcome, but I learned a lot about fundraising. I learned a lot about, you know, we did Y Combinator. So I knew what investors were looking for. So I understood that this problem would not be investable. Like no investor would want to invest in this because it sounds too good to be true. It's a very old problem that existed many years. Every organization suffers from it. And nobody has solved it. And we have a magic way of doing it that nobody has figured out. That sounds too good to be true for investors, like honestly, because they constantly, when an investor looks at an investment, a VC looks at an investment, they ask themselves, why did nobody do this before? And many times the answer is something shifted in the world of technology, right? For example, when you come with a cloud security solution, they would say, why did nobody do this before? Because cloud is a new thing. Nobody wanted cloud security until now. Or it's a new technology, right? Like for example, in endpoint protection, there's a lot of like, okay, we're doing it now with AI. It's a new way of doing it. But we didn't have that. I couldn't explain to them why nobody did it before. There was no API like, 10 years ago. Yeah, like, I, I, but I, you know, this problem is around for a long time. Just yes. nobody, nobody's done it. So I knew it would be impossible to raise funding. 
So me and Ofri and Avada, we decided to just start building it, right? Like, and get to some proof of the fact that we can solve. And we actually got like, you know, side jobs, like consulting and, you know, sort of fund ourselves while we were building this. Um, but as soon as I left, you know, my previous company, um, people started to hear about it and started trying to talk to me and say, we want to invest in you. And I told them, no, like I told them, there's no reason to talk to me. I know you cannot invest in this. You won't get it. Like you don't understand it. You won't see it as investable. Um, but, you know, there were just enough funds that were still persistent enough. And they, at the end, we got an offer to get funding or seed funding with nothing, with an idea. Um, I can tell you, I once they wanted to, they we, we got to the, first stage of them qualifying us. They put us in front of other CISOs and I just told them, look, we don't have a solution. I just want to solve this problem and ask them, how big is this problem for you? And almost all of them said, this is the biggest problem that I have. So that got them really encouraged to invest in us. And I actually built the deck that outlines the solution five minutes before we presented it and got the offer for the funding. Cause we really didn't think about, you know, even the solution at that point, we were just a bunch of three guys and an idea. So what happened after? You guys got the money. You guys started hiring yeah. like crazy or kind of slow down and try yeah. to figure out and imagine what's, how it's going to look like? Yeah. So, you know, today Exonius on objective terms, which I'm very proud of, and it's all credit to the team and everybody who's been part of it is an incredibly successful cybersecurity company. But we definitely didn't start out that way. Our first year was really difficult because even though we're three technical co-founders, it was very hard for us to build the solution. And the reason it was very hard because we really knew we had to build an architecture that supports this kind of model of building a large amount of integrations, being able to correlate data that you cannot depend on its structure or how it looks like, but has to be deterministic and has to work in every environment. And we were just really bad at it. Like we, we started talking to customers and we gave them like the early betas and the product would just crash and burn continuously. And it took us about a year and a half until we even got to something was usable. And it was really difficult. And actually we started having some pretty bad conversations internally about where the company is going. But I knew, just like I told you before, that the sun would rise the next day. I knew that whoever solves this problem would have a huge wave of success as a company. And we just, you know, grit our teeth and figured out how to get the product working. And then that happened, stuff took off very fast. Is there anything particular happened that you knew, like you knew you were in the right track already, but yeah. then maybe, you know, the horizon aligned and the sun aligned and you <laughs> want a big deal or was there was a recognition that, you know, okay, you know what? I knew I'm on the right track, but now it's actually working as the architecture, as I envision, and we should move in this direction. So I'll give you the story of our first customer. That to me is the most clear clarity moment that would be the answer to your question. So this is a customer. This was our, I don't know, I think like our seventh or eighth or, you know, somewhere the clo- close to the, you know, 10 customer POC. Now we had burnt all the other PLCs. These were early customers who believed in us, said, look, we understand it's a beta. We want to use it. We would deploy it to their environment and it would crash and burn. It would just not work. And this customer, um, you know, we had started the POC. 
This was, and the meeting I'm going to talk about happened in Black Hat of 2018, August of 2018. Now we started the POC three months earlier um, and it was really not working well. Like the product was super buggy. Every time it gave them answers, it, they like we figured out it was a mistake and you know, three painful months of trying to work with them on the product. And then that day during Black Hat in August, I remember that morning we had a, a, a closeout, a POC closeout call with the technical evaluator guy, the technical engineer. And I was supposed to meet with his boss. That was the guy who I was working with. Um, I was supposed to meet with them in our hotel room in, in Vegas back then. And that morning we did the, some, the POC closeout call. And I don't know, I've gone to learn like sort of the sales, you know, language, the people. And once we showed him the results of the POC, he asked us the following. He said, okay, is there anything else about the Exonia solution that I have not seen yet that is valuable? And we said, no. And he said, okay. And to me, that was code word for, okay, I have proven out this is not valuable for us. And nobody asked that question if they're happy with the product, okay? <laughs> so I finished that call. I'm like, I feel terrible because I'm like, you know, this is never going to work. Like we cannot keep burning, you know, POCs. People who believed in us and then we deploy the product and it's not, and it's not working. You know, I have no idea how we're going to turn this around. And, you know, I am going to this meeting with his boss is going to start. And I go to Nate an hour before and I tell him, look, this is going to be a terrible meeting. I don't know how, I don't know how to go. He's going to come in and tell us like, you know, they can't buy because the product's immature and it's not working for them. And uh, I need your help. Like I just help me out with this. I don't know what to, I don't know how we're going to survive this. And Nate is such an amazing person always looks at everything with a positive attitude of, but look, did we not provide any value to them? I'm like, no, we did provide them value, but the product was just completely terrible. Like it didn't work well. And there were a lot of bugs and it was immature. Um, and he said, well, do we address those bugs that we get? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, okay, then let's build a deck to show him what were the things that were the value we provided to him and all the bugs that we had and how quickly we responded to it. So Nate prepares this deck. He comes into our hotel room. We start the meeting. And I just ask him, like, hey, how's the experience been? Um, because I know, you know, like we had a bunch of challenges. And he basically explains that he, you know, he was very happy with the experience and he wants to purchase the product. And I'm nice. like, very, I'm very confused. I ask him, and we didn't even show the deck yet, right? Like, I'm like, okay. Um, how did you get to that? Like, can you elaborate? And he said, look, guys, you know, your product's very early, right? It's not really mature. But I'll tell you two things. First of all, you showed me definitive value that I couldn't get from any other product. By the way, one of the things that were part of the value that we talked about was that agent example you just gave. He's like, look, you showed me like a, a huge gap in our agent deployment. That's a must fix that I have to do. And there were a bunch of other things. And I couldn't have done that unless I spent many hours of manual work on it. And by the time I would have finished that, it would have been already on, you know, not coherent anymore because it's constantly changing. And the second, whenever we told you about a bug you had, um, after a couple of days, you addressed it. And most of the other vendors I talked to take them, you know, they start talking to me about which quarter they're going to fix something. 
So, it, you know, that was it. That to me is the biggest turn of the tide moment from the beginning too. And they ended up being our first customer. A very inspiring story. Thank you. Yeah. And I think you bring a very interesting point. Right now, when we evaluate customers, by we, I mean customers, the, the industry in general, not customers, vendors, there's a lot of talk about features and stuff like that. But because majority of the products right now are SaaS-based, and it's relatively easy to switch product, not easy, but relatively, we all want to be stickiness. So we want to employ uh, deploy the product and be sticky with the customer. And what happened? When customer need to re renew, even not in SaaS, even on-prem, then the sales team and the support, everybody start to be nice and everybody, because everybody wants to renew. But not all the companies provide and fix bugs the entire time of the cycle. So this customer success, customer support, I believe it's important. And we will probably will see much more dedication and focus from customers when they're buying to not just understand the features, but what will happen after they purchase the product as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I constantly think about what is our reason to exist? Why does Exonius exist? Why do people buy? Why do people join Exonius as an employer, right? Like there's a lot of other successful companies in tech. There's a lot of other successful companies in cyber. And why? Why do we exist? And actually that's our mission that is actually the initials of our values is the word growth. And we talk about growth not only from a revenue and you know metric standpoint, we talk about what kind of growth are we providing to our employees? What kind of growth are we providing to our customers? And you can look at many different categories in cyber and say, if you do this metric, you are the best product. For example, in endpoint protection, if you have the best detection rate or your MITRE score, or whatever, you're the best product. That's literally what the companies say and the analysts say. The same with like, I don't know, firewalls is the thoroughput. Or you can always find that. But for our problem, asset management, a, a number or a metric, it's how much value the person that is using it derives from it. So I really tried along with my team and my co-founders to explain to people that it goes back to what I said in the beginning. Our right to exist is completely based on how happy our customers are with the value they get. And that means that you don't measure things in revenue. You don't measure things in, in, you know, magic quadrant. You measure it by our metric, which is not perfect, but that's the one we use is NPS, right? Net Promoter Score. And our NPS hovers, it changes, ebbs and flows, but it's been in the 80s pretty much on average. Um, and we've never seen any other cybersecurity product that's ever gotten to an 80s NPS. And the only way to get that is by solving something that's very painful doing it in a very economical way, right? Like fast, um, not disrupting any something existing, not requiring a lot of work, but most importantly, creating trust in the customer service experience. And none of that, by the way, all of that sounds great. Like why not would easy. an organization do that? But it's not only not easy, it's very expensive. And it's something you have to understand how you get the return on that investment. So many organizations just don't do it because it looks like, this huge expense that they can't justify. And like you said, people remember a customer only when they renew. But to us, the way we measure them, and we know this is a very direct relationship. If our customer will be happy, not only will their business with us increase, but also when their team, you know, when somebody moves to a new organization, they will bring us in. 
you know, they'll move to a new employer. They'll say, oh, guys, you need to buy Exonus because they will explain the value that they got in their previous job. So Agreed. that's Agreed. how we see it. But obviously, it's not easy. It's really hard. As a CEO, you have a lot of tasks, a lot of things to work. And as you mentioned, the beginning was rough. What do you do personally for yourself to kind of get back on your legs when you have a hard day or there's a lot of things that are happening that are not going as you expected? Yeah, it's uh, where do I start? <laughs> this is a very <laughs> short answer, Evgeny. I don't need to talk about this. So look, first of all, I will say from a place of absolute honesty, I'm a... You know, I had a pretty rough childhood growing up from economical reason, from social reasons. Um, I, from as early as I can remember myself, have always seen the world from a view of being a survivor, right? Needing, knowing that whatever I want in life, I will need to earn. I will never get it. Nobody will ever give it to me. I need to earn it. And that's, that I think made me a damaged individual, right? I'm either you know, scarred or damaged or broken or whatever term you want to call it, that makes me have to have an incredibly deep, meaningful challenge for me to find meaning in my life, right? Like, I wish I could do a nine to five, right? Like, I wish I could do a regular job where I'm a small part of something else um, and just be happy with that. If I could, by the way, I would change myself to do that because it's, I think it's a much it's a much nicer life, but I can't. I need this crusade, and the reason I call it a crusade is because it sounds so far fetched that people think you're crazy, right? That's what I need to find satisfaction and meaning in my life, and that drives me to do everything I do. Now I can keep talking about like how do I, you know, manage my mentality? How do I manage my time? How do I, you know, reach scale? But I'm talking about this point. Because I think it's fun. It's the only reason why somebody should be an entrepreneur. Any other reason is not worth it. And there's a lot, I I don't want to talk about Elon Musk right now, but there is a quote that I love that he said, somebody, some journalist or, or, you know, somebody asked him in this period of time, like right now, when the markets uh, are in a downturn, he said, what are your words of encouragements for entrepreneurs? And he said something that clarifies exactly my point. And he said, if you need words of encouragement, you should not be an entrepreneur. This is a very smart. So the drive is supposed to be inside. It doesn't matter good, bad, or this shall fast. Thank you. This is a very powerful, I think, very inspiring for people that are listening to us right now. I want to ask you an interesting part. If you can recommend something to yourself to go back five years ago to do differently. It's almost funny because it's five years ago. Usually people ask when you join a company where you want to be in five years ago, but they ask you backwards, what would you do differently? It's really hard. You know, I think some of the best CEOs or founders or tech visionaries, one of the things we have to do is to live in the future, right? And I tell this to my team all the time. I'm like, uh, I have a privilege. I need to live in the future and you guys need to do the day. You know, do the, and I need to help them with the present. Obviously, I spend a lot of my time dealing with the present day problems. But most of my brain is in the future. It's all about where is the company going? Where do we want it to go? How do we look at the point of the future that we want to get to and then work backwards and understand what are all the decisions and outcomes that need to happen to get there? So, asking me, you know, 
what would I have changed about the past? I don't think about that ever. There's just not enough mental capacity between the <laughs> present and the future. So my best answer is, I don't know what I would have changed because I don't think about the past because I can't change it. And I always think about the future. It's, I can tell you for sure this is the first time, I think we did more like 25 episodes right now that I recorded this capacity. You're the first one asking, I will not change anything because some people say, I'll go quicker, I'll make decisions faster. So very good question. Very good answer, sorry. Great. I think we covered the dark side. I have a section in the end called dark side. What went wrong? I think you elaborate on this during the interview <laughs> quite well. So we're not going to touch base on this part. Anything else you would like to share personally, or maybe that somebody that's starting their journey right away, what would you recommend to them to do? I would say I would really encourage anyone who's either an entrepreneur or is joining a startup or is part of a startup to really ask yourself, why do you have a reason to exist as an organization? Or why do you, what do you contribute? What is the meaning of what you do in your organization? Because, you know, some startups get, get started because the founders want to have an acquisition and there's nothing wrong with that. On the contrary, I think that's a fantastic thing for people to pursue. But that also means they're making certain decisions. That also means they're making, you know, certain actions that are part of getting to that outcome. And many of them, I think, are timid to be honest about that because it means certain things. And I think that's a very dangerous thing, dangerous thing not to be honest about why you exist and what you're trying to do. The other part is, you know, if you want to be, if you don't want to get acquired, that means one of two things, either your growth will plateau, right? And then you're going to be what people call a lifestyle business, which is also not a bad thing, but it also means something else. It means that you shouldn't be raising funding from VCs because that's not what they expect. And it also means that you have to have very strong unit economics and you have to be profitable and all those things. Or you're going to keep that growth until you become a very large company. Now, both those directions mean a lot of very specific things. And I think some of the worst outcomes we're seeing right now, you know, companies doing layoffs, companies, you know, sort of pivoting their whole thing, executive teams getting replaced very violently. I think many of those are the result of people not being honest or determining what the direction of what they're trying to do is. Thank you. Very valuable and straightforward advice. Dean, thank you very much for being here today. Everybody listening to us today, thank you for joining us. Please subscribe, tell your friends, relatives, and give us a rating on where you're listening to us as well. Dean, thank you very much. Thank you, Evgeny.